0: From the early 19th century idiocy, uh, particularly in Revolutionary France and later in America and Britain, (coughs) came to be seen as a domain of medical interest and inquiry. It had been previously ignored because of its untreatability and incurability, but it was now presented by medical men as a matter of public concern, duty, and obligation. The idiot and the imbecile so broadly people bearing the characteristics of those who label as intellectually disabled today were presented in two ways. Firstly, as pitiable wretches, unable to cope in communities where they were cruelly victimised, beaten and chained. And secondly, as dysfunctional individuals um, who were outside the rules of normal human behaviour, who were a potential danger both to themselves and others. And this peculiar dichotomy endured throughout 19th century writing and thought about idiocy, with the idiot figure presented as both in need of protection because of their vulnerability and of incarceration because of their dangerousness. Either way, the medical claim was that the idiot should be incarcerated. This thinking was effortlessly integrated into eugenic science, Uh, from the 1870s and into what the social worker historian Stanley Davis in 1923 called the social indictment of the mentally retarded in the early years of the 20th century. It survives to some extent today in medical discourse related to learning or intellectual disability and I'll argue in this paper that there never has been a tradition of medical activism in the interests of those people we label as intellectually disabled today and who have been presented under any na- number of labels idiot, mentally deficient, mental defectives, mentally retarded, feeble minded, morons, cretins, educationally subnormal, mental defectives, and so on and so on. Why is this so, given that there is evidence of at least some kind of pro patient medical activism in almost every other medical domain, as some of the talks in today's symposium have clearly demonstrated? And I'll argue that three factors cause this activism failure. Firstly, medicine has always struggled to exert a legitimate claim to identify, treat, manage and control the population of people with an intellectual disability, given that the person's level of mental faculty is simply a function of who they are, rather than a treatable or curable condition. It was for this reason that medical men were deeply uninterested in until the early 19th century. In a business that paid by results, trying to cure idiocy was a futile and suicidally unprofitable occupation. Medicine has therefore found itself trespassing into domains of education, forensic, social care, social control, and protection in order to justify its authority in this domain. Anything indeed, except medicine. Secondly, Because the medical profession laid claim to idiocy on spurious grounds of public protection, far removed from their normal modes of operation, it's always been in their interest to exaggerate either the helplessness or the threat that the intellectually disabled pose. This was not a realm in which they could demonstrate their efficacy by treating people and returning them to a normal life as was the case, at least theoretically, in medical treatment of lunacy. Once it started to be demonstrated that an idiot person could live successfully in their community without need of medical supervision or treatment, their role would be superfluous. Thirdly, the idiot population was seen by the medical profession as having no voice, in many cases quite literally. This was not a voiceless population through illness, poverty, environmental hardship, oppression or temporary misfortune but simply a voiceless organism in human form but lacking humanness. Such a population could not then be given a voice through activism and their voice was seen as non-existent rather than unheard. In 1904, Martin Barr, the American medical superintendent and president of the American Association for the Study of Feeble-Mindedness, wrote in his book, Mental Defectives, Their History, Treatment and Training, the idiot intelligently sees nothing, feels nothing, hears nothing and knows nothing. He simply lives alone. Now, Barr chose his words carefully. He used the word intelligently in the sense adopted by post-Darwinian comparative psychologists that intelligence was the capacity of any living organism to interact with its environment, to respond to stimuli in a sensory motor feedback loop, and alone meant in a state of complete non-interaction with the world. So by implying that the idiot lacked this basic capacity of evolved life, seeing, feeling, and hearing nothing, idiocy was placed outside the realm of known human experience, and indeed below that of the higher mammals, and somewhere on the scale towards the unconscious, simple organism. Medical writing about idiocy throughout the 19th century, even when in humanitarian mode, stressed the absence of a voice in the idiot, and even when a voice appeared to exist, as in the case of higher ranking imbeciles, this was presented medically as a non-voice, a parroting that mimicked human speech, but was far from it. So each of these factors, the implausibility of the untreatable and unchangeable condition of idiocy being a matter for medical treatment, The need to keep the idiot, once medically incarcerated, permanently confined for fear of losing the authority to treat, and the presentation of the idiot as a voiceless, almost subhuman, meant that a position of activism on behalf of the idiot was unfeasible for the 19th century medical professional. Yet for some, it was important to present activism, at times, as part of the portfolio of reasons um, for their authority over idiocy on the grounds of their unique knowledge of the condition and their unique ability to understand and control it, as we shall see. Okay, a chance for me to show you some of my holiday photos as well. <laughs> Serious medical writing about idiocy and the claim for it to be a medical domain began in France in the wake of the French Revolution, most markedly in the work of the medical legal theorist Francois Foderet, and Etienne-Jean-Georges. They were emboldened by a new scientific authority given to medical professionals by revolutionary enlightenment ideas and fired further by the adoption of the Napoleonic Code, the Code Civil from 1804, which gave medical practitioners expanding and powerful roles in the areas of public health, public order and the law. Foddery promised that medicine brings to French society. Uh, these are going to be my translations, so you'll have to trust me. Scientific Exactness, a new medicalized light shining from the reason of the enlightenment in his Treatise on Legal Medicine and Public Health. First written at the height of the revolution in 1792 and redrafted in 1813 after the introduction of the code. And in this work, he introduced uh, nosology, uh, taxonomy of idiocy and dismissed the ability of lay people to identify it, claiming it as a condition that only qualified medical practitioners could identify. And he said, what comparisons can there be between the assertions of a large number of, if you like, ignorant people, he means the public, only judging according to their own manner of being, little interested in the thing, idiocy itself and the motivated decisions given with knowledge of facts by truthful, upright, enlightened doctors. His descriptions of idiot types combined a mixture of pity and loathing, a common characteristic of medical discourse about idiocy across the 19th century. His three categories of mental disorder were mania, dementia, and imbecility. And while giving sympathetic descriptions of the first two, Those who fell under the category of imbecility, he described as absolute strangers, like monsters among the human race. The language of the imbecile class was dismissed as non-language. The most severely affected idiots would simply parrot words meaninglessly, and if they ever happened by chance to say something that made sense, this was simply a chance act of wondrous divinity and would be immediately followed by an unconnected and irrelevant triviality. Now for Fodere, the higher class of idiot was more dangerous in that they had some association of ideas and could achieve a rudimentary education. The result was there was no connection between their apparently impressive and meaningful words and their actions. They could appear to talk about uh, abstract moral concepts like injustice but it was like, said Fauderay, listening to an automaton. So this group, morally depraved, but with the appearance of meaningful speech, were denounced by Fauderay as les charlatans et les frupons, charlatans and rascals. Such literal denial of the voice of the idiot class um, became an emblematic medical trope throughout the century. So Etienne-Jean-Georget, who succeeded Fauderay, as France's foremost medico-legal theorist, described in 1826 the lowest form of idiot as having no mental existence at all and who would die if not cared for. The next level, while having some mental sensation, were voiceless and could only act reflexively and without purpose. At the next level were idiots whose language was simply parrot-like, using but not understanding words. He expressed loathing and disgust for the lower form of idiot, who he described as urinating and leaving fecal matter wherever they were found, highly prone to masturbation and riddled with disease. The higher imbecile was deterministically criminal and amoral, but, he argued, punishing them for their crimes was pointless, as they would certainly return to crime once released from prison, and if executed, their peers would be incapable of understanding or absorbing the exemplary message of the punishment and would not be deterred from crime. Either way, for the helpless, ill, lower form of idiot not in control of their body, or the irredeemably amoral and criminal, higher functioning idiot, lifelong detention in an institution under medical supervision was the only answer. There developed, um, after Faudray and Georges, uh, an approach to idiocy generally represented as humane, educative and enabling, led by Edouard Sagan uh, at the Bicetre in Paris, and continued by John Connolly and John Landon Down in Britain. And this was based on moral treatment, which Cara has just been speaking about, and a curative approach. Now this system, largely rejected methods of physical restraint or punishment, and aimed instead that the disordered mind would learn to acknowledge the moral authority of those who were treating them. First learning, as Simon Tuke described it, respect and obedience, and subsequently attaining a level of rational and orderly conduct. For both lunatics and idiots, this offered a welcome retreat from cruel physical punishments and restraint, and for lunatics, it offered at least a theoretical pathway out of the institution, even if it involved a commitment to self-policing their own minds, as Foucault described it in his famous deconstruction of the quaker tube moral treatment regime at the York retreat in the late 18th century. In the case of idiots, however, moral treatment was more an object of benign discipline to retain them within the institutional setting, but in a calmer and more cooperative way. Sagan implemented a moral treatment regime for the idiot population at the Bicetra, building on the early work by Philippe Pinel. The regime applied to idiots at the Bicetra was not intended either to achieve some form of equality or indeed arouse moral sentiment in the form of recovery or attainment of reason. Both of these were seen as out of the question for idiots. It was rather a utilitarian method to achieve discipline and control Over a troubled and troubling population, and to enable or persuade them to live orderly, regulated, and unthreatening lives within the institution. It was an educational rather than a medical regime. The function of moral treatment was to internalize a particular form of obedient consciousness where none had existed before. As Sagan wrote in 1846, moral treatment consists of the implementation of all appropriate moral methods to corroborate the health and educational prescriptions to which the idiot refuses more or less to submit himself. The intention is not kindness for its own sake or to accord the idiot or imbecile full human status, but to advocate the most effective method of making them orderly and to eradicate the thirst for revenge or violence which harsh physical treatment might cause. and Sagan said it was the hatred, vengeance and fanaticism of the imbecile that he believed moral treatment contained. Now, as the historian Boris Silkson argues in, a, in an article called Moral Government of Idiots, imposition of will was everything, achieved through a regime of training, reward and punishment. Punishment involved the withdrawal of favour rather than physical beating or seclusion. In Simpson's words, the Parisian medical men no more expected their idiot and imbecile charges to become morally responsible for their own actions than they would believe a trained dog morally culpable. So this was the critical distinction between moral treatment as applied to idiocy and as it was applied to lunacy. In lunacy, however controlling or imposing it might have been, it was seen as a pathway to restoration and possible reintegration into ordinary life outside the institution. For idiots, it was little more than a blueprint for imposing and sustaining an ordinary and disciplined life, albeit largely cruelty-free, within the institution. British medical men involved in the institutional care of idiots were keen to learn from the developments in the Parisian institutions and beat a regular path to Sagan's and later Esquirol's door at the Nysetre. The most prominent was John Connolly, who was superintendent and later visiting physician of the Hanwell Asylum, west of London, in the 1840s. Connolly saw the small population of idiots amongst the larger population of lunatics at Hanwell as a problem. He couldn't see a way to treat them, but nor did he wish to discharge them. After studying Sagan's work, he established a limited educative programme for his idiots at Hanwell, and became part of a campaign to establish a separate specialist charitable idiocy asylum. And this came to fruition in the opening of the 500-bedded Oldswood Idiot Asylum in Surrey in 1855, the world's first purpose-built institution for idiots. And in 1858, Connolly's protégé, John Landon Down became superintendent. Down epitomizes the later 19th century medical framing of the idiot as both a fit object of moral treatment, and a permanent, voiceless creature of the asylum. Shortly after he arrived at Oswald, he announced that he would take advantage of the opportunity afforded by the large concentration of young idiots brought together within the spacious walls to establish a classification of the pupils. And when he eventually produced his classification in 1867, Dan, a keen anthropologist and a member of the Anthropological Society of London, proposed a bizarre theory, which he called the ethnic classification of idiots. The theory was that amongst his idiot inmates, all of whom were born of Caucasian parents, could be found members of the five great races of mankind, according to anthropological theory. Caucasians, but also Aztecs, Native Americans, Ethiopics, Africans, Malays, and Mongolians. This was the basis of his discovery of Mongolian imbecility, now known as Down Syndrome. He used the anthropological theory of recapitulation to explain this strange phenomenon. This argued that higher animals, including mankind, pass through stages which represent in sequence the adult forms of the ancestral creatures that preceded them. Abnormal adults in the so-called superior Caucasian race represented atavisms or throwbacks, the spontaneous reappearance in adults of ancestral features that had disappeared in advanced lineages. So once again the medical man, in the absence of any medical tasks to perform with the incurable and unchanging idiots in his care, had moved to a new discipline, this time anthropology, to provide some evidence of worthwhile intellectual activity, just as Sagan had become an educationalist. Presenta- Dan's presentation of the idiot was of a semi-evolved being, trapped in mankind's deep ancestral origins. Far from moving forward, the idiot was quite literally moving backwards, in fact, by several millennia. Such a being was not fit to emerge from the institution, that could be displayed to the public as a curiosity. Down introduced an asylum band consisting of both staff members and idiot inmates, who would accompany long, neatly formed lines of Oswald idiots on marches along the Brighton seafront, or to visit a menagerie in Redhill. What the public were asked to see was exotic representations of mankind's savage past, tamed and safely returned to the institution at the end of the day. No significant transition was needed from this point to the eugenic scare period. The case of permanent institutionalisation of the idiots had already been made by Fodere, then Georges, then Connolly, then Down. So this was the nature of medical engagement with the idiot population who uh, they claimed the right to treat and manage over the, over the century. It never was and never could be an activist movement because the medical claim to idiocy was spurious in the first place. They couldn't treat an unchanging aspect of a person's being and they couldn't advocate a return to community because this would undermine their original claim for a need for treatment. The medical profession could only present itself as the heroic saviours of a population capable of living outside the institution or as the necessary protectors and tamers of a dangerous and incorrigible group, a risk to themselves and others. This medical thinking about it is endured and endures through the 20th and early 21st century. The small amount of opposition that was raised to the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913 was led by politicians, uh, not the doctors who were, um, were involved and any interested showed no opposition to the act which stipulated either lifetime containment in enclosed rural colonies or oppressive community supervision for the mentally deficient as they were now called there was little enthusiasm in the medical profession for the closing of long-stay asylums and the implementation of community care for people with mental handicaps as they had by then become known from the 1980s in fact medical professionals frequently um, opposed the closures on the grounds that they mentally handicapped would simply be unable to manage in the community. A recent article described the closure programme in the 1980s at the Starcross Hospital in Devon, originally the Western C- County's Idiot Asylum, built shortly after Landon Down's Oldswood Asylum. Two managers, neither of them medically trained, described the struggles that they face to close the institution and resettle those who lived in it. Conditions at this time were appalling. One of the managers described it like this, it astounds me how long it all took. Nobody would have benefited from staying at StarCross, nobody. It was totally inappropriate for anyone. I used to visit StarCross and come away punch drunk and be muse.
1: Not one of the very able and experienced people involved in health and social care services locally were pressing
0: for the institutions to close. Rather, they were urging that they be made more hygienic. Now, neither of the two managers who eventually successfully carried through the closure programme were medically qualified or indeed knew anything about learning disability when they were appointed. Their lack of medical expertise enabled them to see the human catastrophe that was going on in front of them, to which the the medical profession's eyes were closed. So to conclude, I just want to end by showing you some pictures of a young man called Matthew Garnett. Matthew was featured at a Channel 4 dispatches programme called Under Lock and Key around a year ago about injust incarceration of people with learning disabilities in medical assessment and treatment units. He has autism and a learning disability and he was detained in a charitable medical institution, St Andrews in Northampton, where he was subject to restraint and seclusion and forcibly medicated. His parents, after the documentary, managed to extricate him from the hospital against the wishes of its medical staff. He is now supported to live in the community, and these are some photographs of him carrying out a project that he drank up when he was detained. He's trying to visit every football ground in England, Wales, and Scotland. A doctor in the hospital stated when opposing his release, he belongs in a hospital, pure and simple. It was a remark worthy of any 19th century idiocy doctor. Ironically, for a profession that has characterized the idiot as unchanging, awkward, even reversionary, it seems to be doctors themselves who remain locked in their ancestral past.